Hi, I'm Erica Pandey, and welcome to Axios Recap, where we dig into one big story. It's Friday, December 10th, and we're focused on 10 to 15 minute grocery delivery. Online grocery was a niche market before the pandemic. Most consumers opted to go to the stores to pick out their bananas and apples or whatever it was themselves. The thinking was, if I order online, will I receive bruised vegetables or sour milk? But that equation changed when the fear of COVID loomed large. It pushed those who had tried grocery delivery in the past to do it more, and those who hadn't to get on board. As a result, the industry has seen a serious uptick. Online grocery orders grew 80% in 2020, and then another 17% this year, according to CoreSight Research. But there's still tons of room to grow. Online grocery is still just around 10% of the overall grocery market. Companies like DoorDash want to tap into this boom by adding even more convenience. This week, DoorDash announced a New York City pilot that offers grocery delivery in just 15 minutes. There are other companies out there that say they'll do it in 10. But pulling that off takes enormous resources and labor. To be quick and convenient for consumers, it requires putting up micro warehouses throughout cities, replacing bodegas and small shops. So will 10 to 15 minute delivery become the new normal, just like Amazon Prime made consumers expect one day shipping? And if it does take off, how will it change the labor market or even the way our downtowns look? In a moment, I'll be joined by Greg Lindsay, a senior fellow at MIT's Future Urban Collectives Lab. We'll dig into the rise of super speedy grocery delivery and what it means for our cities. We're now joined by Greg Lindsay, a senior fellow at MIT's Future Urban Collectives Lab. Hey, Greg. Hi, Erica. So, Greg, the upside to something like DoorDash's 15-minute grocery delivery is convenience. But what are some of the big costs of this convenience? I think we're just beginning to figure out what those costs really are. So, I mean, obviously there's the labor issues. That goes back to the era of ride-hailing, and we've seen legislation over that. But the one cost that I don't think people have really fully considered is what it does to our cities, like the actual streetscape of what's happening. So, you know, for example, if you're in Manhattan on 14th Street and you walk west on 14th, you'll pass by, in a span of blocks, a dark store by Joker. On the next block is one by Fridge No More, and the block after that is one by Gorillas. And it just sort of hints a bit at uh, what happens when the scale of this starts to get large. Right now, there are dozens of dark stores in Manhattan alone, for example. The stated ambitions of these companies, there's now seven of them, it, it wants to scale into the hundreds. And at that point, like parts of the streetscape go away somewhat permanently, right? Like, it's not like just like a vacant storefront where, where in theory someone can sign a lease. I mean, those become profitable spaces where you can't go inside and are sort of papered over forever. And, you know, it's sort of like an externality, right? Like, they're bringing convenience to you at low cost, but the rest of us suffer the fact that, like, these go from storefronts and parts of urban life into miniature warehouses that are just very conveniently located. This term dark stores, I actually walked by the new DoorDash pilot warehouse on 25th Street the other day here in Manhattan. And yeah, the windows are all tinted. Can you explain for our listeners who haven't heard this term dark stores? And you also say the proliferation of these warehouses, our cities risk becoming dark cities. Can you explain what that means, too? 
Yeah, I mean, so before drugstores, there was the ghost kitchen, right? I think some more people are familiar with that. That was the idea it started with, you know, some restaurants that were running essentially fake restaurants that only existed on various apps like DoorDash and Uber Eats. So first you had ghost kitchens. And then that evolved from, you know, restaurants running side restaurants into literally people building pop-up kitchens that could go into malls or warehouses or other spaces like like Travis Kalanick, who founded Uber. Now, now he's doing cloud kitchens like this. Then there's the dark store. So like DoorDash, you know, basically went from delivering things from other stores using couriers to creating its own network of what's called dash marts, mostly of like convenience store items, really high velocity, cheap stuff that people want a lot of. And, you know, and, and yeah, effectively stripping down a store and turning it into this really well-situated delivery location where, you know, couriers are, are hopping in and out on electric bicycles or scooters to fulfill this, you know, promise of 15 minute or less delivery. And, and so, you know, it's become a battle as always of, you know, incredible convenience and also cost. You know, these are typically because of the battle for market share, you know, maybe there's a, a tiny fee, a buck 49, uh, or there's no fee at all as part of the initial side up. And so, you know, once again, we're seeing like, you know, deep pocketed startups flood the zone, so to speak here to win market share and, and then hopefully achieve some sort of like, at least, you know, oligopoly pricing. With these dark stores, the space that they build them in doesn't come out of nowhere. What are they replacing? Well, I mean, I think they're replacing a lot of the storefronts that we've seen either during or from before the pandemic. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, before the pandemic, we used to talk about like you know the retail apocalypse and the mall apocalypse and the fact that like you know there were so many. Uh, a, an economist friend of mine once said the problem with America is not that it's over retail, that it's under demolished. Like a lot of the stuff's just not fit for purpose. And what I think is really interesting is that you know that one time we used to talk about smart cities, which meant like taking like like a Hudson Yards or prestige properties and slapping a lot of technology on it. Well, what DoorDash and competitors have done is figure out that like you can use technology to take these really marginalized spaces, dead, long, vacant storefronts, and turn them into really profitable urban nodes. Like they figured out how to use technology to like basically conjure productive spaces out of thin air. So on the one hand, you've got, you know, this really scary idea of a main street where I walk down and I can't actually go into any of the quote unquote stores. But then on the other hand, it's turning a place that, you know, maybe was boarded up into a profitable shop that's creating jobs, you know, whatever that those jobs may be. Isn't that a, a good thing? Well, it's a question of like, uh, you know, highest and best uses for it. Like, I mean, I don't know, do, do we really need to turn big swaths of 14th Street and other like useful street avenues in Manhattan into that? I mean, again, it's is it convenience for the people who live in the high rises above to some extent? But I, I think taking large chunks of the urban fabric offline, I think it's taking some of the most valuable property on the planet, both in terms of just, you know, uh, rent per square foot, but also just in terms of like urban vitality and, you know, turning it to a lesser use. I mean, I, you know, I think there's some really interesting plays at this that could happen happen out in the suburbs and elsewhere. I mean, like the most interesting development for me, for example, of this is a, a dead mall in Richmond, California, out in the Bay Area, where Prologis, which is like the biggest company when it comes to industrial real estate, wants to turn that dead mall, in, if they can get the zoning, into a mix of retail, of course, uh, residences, which is interesting, but also kind of delivery and micro-fulfillment. And there you can imagine like people literally living above a warehouse and having stuff delivered to their house in five minutes or less. That's kind of really interesting. It's like, you know, if you cut down on car trips in the suburbs and the those kinds of models, great. But but doing that in like the, the densest cores of our cities, I, I think is suboptimal and, and, you know, harming our cities actively. One of the most interesting parts of this to me is how something like 15-minute delivery just changes the way people shop. I mean, you don't have to stock up for the week on Sunday anymore if you can just get groceries for tonight's dinner today. How did we get here? Why is this so addicting for consumers? 
Well, that, I mean, it's a great question. Yeah, I mean, one of the scariest, most provocative things was the quote by one of Joker's co-founders, which is the idea that like, yeah, the first time you use us, it's because you forgot an ingredient for dinner. The next time you use us, use it to get all of your ingredients. And after that, you don't go to the grocery store anymore. And that's and that's part of the end game, right? Like this is exactly like Uber and Lyft, like trying to do full capture of every ride across every mode of transportation. That's what the delivery services want. It's the only way to justify, you know, the huge valuations they have. Um, so that's scary to me too, of like what that means for local businesses at any scale. But, you know, I mean, how do we get here? I mean, I, I don't know, the pandemic, of course, to some extent, because people turn to these delivery services en masse because of fears of contagion. But also just like with convenience, uh, you know, convenience stems from this notion of like, we're so time crunched. This is, I mean, <laughs> the short version is like late capitalism, right? Like we're all working so hard. We're all doing this a pandemic. People need to find every tiny any sliver of time they can get back and they'll take it. And then there's this notion that delivery and, and being able to never leave your house again is a form of status in this. And, you know, I, I saw there's an essay by Webb Smith, who's an e-commerce direct-to-consumer brand consultant, uh, who calls this the new class divide. Like, there's basically two types of people, you know, the, the, the lordly remote workers who, you know, do Peloton from home and trade NFTs on OpenSea from their couches and, and work. And then there's the delivery worker who's at their beck and call, who has to be told where to be within 15 or 60 minutes. So yeah, basically an argument that, like, this is what the falling out of the middle class is leading to, you know, inequality and everything. Is this all part of a, a great, you know, rethinking of our cities, either for better or worse, that we're seeing all over the world? I mean, it, it, it's all part of that. I mean, it, it's interesting. One of the points we make is that, you know, the 15-minute city, this notion that comes out of Paris that, you know, that we should live in a, a archipelago of urban neighborhoods where you walk or bike to everything you need. Well, you know, instead of doing it that way, Amazon and the others are bringing a 15-minute city to you where, you know, every delivery is made out of these locations, archipelagos of ghost kitchens and dark stores and Amazon fresh, you know, grocery stores. That's the model being promulgated in the United States. And, you know, there's obviously good business in it or perceived to be good business in it, but I hope that's not the path we take. I hope we do realize that like, you know, the urban realm is one of those great things. It's hard to reproduce. You can destroy it easily. I hope we find ways and create policies and partnerships to revitalize it and not just simply like render down storefronts and real estate into something that is a commodity that sits below the app. It just makes it all fungible. And, and I don't believe cities should be fungible in the end. Greg Lindsay is a senior fellow at MIT's Future Urban Collectives Lab. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me, Erica. Welcome back. What I've got for our recap listeners today is a sneak peek of our third season of How It Happened. Let's take a listen. What does Donald Trump really think of Benjamin Netanyahu? Here's what he told us. Fuck him. I'm Axios' Jonathan Swan. Our hit podcast, How It Happened, is back with a two-part season that answers this question. How did President Trump's failure to achieve peace between Israel and the Palestinians lead to a surprising and historic accomplishment. Join us for the new season of How It Happened, Trump's big deal. Follow How It Happened wherever you listen to podcasts. That's all for today. I'm Erica Pandy, and we're back Monday with another Axios Recap.